Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of We All Gotta Eat, a podcast where we have conversations about food systems, social justice, culture, and health. My name is Allison. I'm Adante. And this is Chris. And today we're really excited. We have a special guest, Dr. Jessica Fonso, who is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins University. She yep, uh, Dante's <laughs> alma mater. Alma mater, uh-huh. And Jess has been involved in everything from the Eat Lancet report, which we have spoken about on this mm-hmm. podcast quite a few times, to the Global Nutrition Report, has worked at the FAO, and she's just an all-round rock star, an absolutely wonderful person. So we're really excited to get, get that interview to you. But first, let's start with our grocery bag. Dante, you want to kick us off? Sure. And today we actually have a bag. <laughs> so you hear the real rustle and not our imitated sounds. Uh, I think we make great imitator grocery bags. <laughs> our first topic, ooh, this is a pretty full bag today. First topic, the American food dollar. And Chris is raising his fist in <laughs> jubilation. <laughs> I figure this is his topic. I've been on a roll. Jubilation, <laughs> that's a good word. Jubilation. So a bit of background, the USDA Economic Research Service, they put out this report uh, called Follow the Food Dollars. It's a really fascinating report. And in a nutshell, the report follows, the, it breaks down the typical dollar spent on domestically produced food and beverages. It also talks about the um, amount of money Americans spend on imported foods versus domestically produced foods but i want to wanted to share a couple of the one one key thing from this so First, it's every sorry so it's every dollar spent on food and then broken down into like fast food or a grocery store or a good question good okay. sorry I, uh, not that it's like it's one dollar the graphic is great we'll post this on the show notes it's a one dollar bill and it is split up into its proportion. So those categories are farm production and agribusiness, food processing, packaging, transportation, food service, energy, oh, okay. advertising. So the food economy in the United yes. States and how much of that money that we spend, a typical dollar, what constitutes that dollar? Okay. So, but, but, but we like not my dollar versus your dollar, but the food economy's dollar. Dollars that the, the country's spending. Consumers. Okay. It's breaking down it the consumer's dollar. Where does that cost come from? Okay, so yeah. it is so it is my dollar, your dollar. Okay, yeah, it same, is our dollars. We're on the same page. Proceed. <laughs> so, of a typical dollar, eight point seven cents constitutes the farm production and agribusiness. That's first of all, that's insanely low. I didn't expect that. It's I mean, we're eating. Well, because that's where food comes from. Right, exactly. <laughs> You're eating a, a carrot, and then we spend a dollar on a bag of carrots, and then eight point seven cents of that actually is from the the carrots. But the really striking part is later on, and this is a, a separate conversation to be had about why they didn't pay enough attention to this. But they later break on break it down these subsequent categories into where their further breakdowns are. So it ends up turning out that twenty one percent of that eight point seven cents goes to the farm workers. So that's okay. 1.8 cents yeah, man. to farm workers who are making these foods. We already know they're underpaid. We already know they're not enough benefits and all of these issues around that. But to see it in such stark, almost insulting terms. So is cents. every category as narrow as 8.7% or there's some pretty bigger right. that's, categories? That's a good question. The widest category is food service which is 32.5%. So these are the everything from fast food to the places that processing are selling food. distribution. Well, so they, there's processing that's oh, separate that's 17 cents. Mhm. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's quite comprehensive 17 cents and for example, legal and accounting for context is 1.3 cents. That seems okay. Right. So so definitely smaller, right? But it's huge but industry when you think here. About Trillion food, dollar industry. You would think that more money would go to the people growing the farm workers right. than would go to should should yeah, I like that. Should. The should it should be, yeah. It was just uh, striking, disappointing, uh, sobering. It kind of, well, I have I have two thoughts. One, the Economic Research Service did such good research. So right now, the Trump administration is trying to move them to like a an off out of dc locations like a, a broom Basement. closet in <laughs> texas or something they're trying to get the ers out of dc and also the 2020 budget is expressly prohibiting right. them from researching things like um food access and and food deserts and anything that's not just kind of like a really objective picture about w- where commodities are sold in the country mm-hmm. so that's a shame because the ers does a lot of great research so Write to your representatives, call your representatives, and let them know that we support the Economic Research Service. 
That's my yeah. first thought. My other thought is um, it reflects just how much processing does happen to food in this country. Um, and especially when you think about how, how much corn makes up a lot of the products that we eat. Right. But you, how many ears of corn do you actually eat, right? Where you have that reflecting more the costs are going to the farmer or just the distribution. But instead you have all of this processing and then it gets into the food industry and, and food service where those costs are where the money's actually being made is in all of these different stages of processing these foods yeah, i think my thoughts to this are knowing how much how much the, the dollar is split how much goes to these other entities i wonder is there a way that we can like override that system so that more than 8.1 cents are allocated to the actual food production right even though this is like what the data says are there ways that Americans can kind of buck that and choose to have their money, have their dollar be split different ways? I mean, other than, you know, buying your own seeds, getting your own farm and growing your food. I'm wondering, is there a way we can actually make it so that we're not putting all this into the uh, retail and distribution, but instead put more in the farm workers and in the actual like, production costs? My impression is that this comes back to a conversation that we, I think we, we always flip back to this idea that there are things we can do, we as consumers, they cost money. Who has money? Who doesn't have money? What does that mean for who can do it and who benefits from doing it? But, you know, Allison, you care, you, you're, you've spoken a lot about organizations and especially restaurants or, or, or food places that make sure that their employees have a, a fair wage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I imagine you might maybe know some food producers who make sure that's a thing do you know offhand are they more expensive those sort of things a food producer like someone who uh, you are you talking about like a restaurant well any any food like a grower yeah so Dante's question is there a way we can even buy corn to use your earlier example that is sustainably produced and the farm workers have a fair wage so there's this really um, interesting group. So uh, there are a lot of farm labor activists group, but there's one group, the Immokalee farm workers. Mm -hmm. They're the tomato farm workers in, in Florida that started this campaign to label produce as being labor responsible. So to encourage people, kind of like when you go to buy produce and there's an organic label, their idea is, mm -hmm. well, if the consumer knows that there's via this label that this food was produced in a way where farmers were paid uh, not necessarily a living wage, but at least like a, a, who were treated fairly, were paid properly and who have, you know, kind of are legal recourse if something happens on the farm. They, they, they go through and have all of these different standards that farms have to meet to be able to put this label on their products. It's... Is it like the, the fair trade thing on coffees? Yeah, yeah, on coffee or chocolate. So it's really, they've, they've done a really good job leveraging this in with regards to tomatoes and with very large buyers. So rather than making, um, influencing my decision or your decision in the supermarket, they've reached out to like McDonald's and Chipotle, buy their tomatoes for all of their products from only from farms that comply with these different labor standards. Um, there are lots of protests on lots of college campuses against Wendy's because Wendy's is like the only major fast food chain that has not decided to pay slightly more for tomatoes and, you know, where that money is going directly back to farm workers. And like, why not Wendy's? If everyone, when everyone else is doing it, why not? This seems like an okay place to jump on the bandwagon. Did Publix ever sign the agreement to do it too? So no, for a people were through and through. Well, yeah, <laughs> I love Publix. Shopping is a pleasure, but no, I, is, I don't. What is Publix? I don't know. Well, he just gave their slogan uh, uh, as well. Publix is the greatest shopping experience on earth. Wegmans is a close second, but I now I remember that uh, there were a lot of protests because Publix there was something they wouldn't sign an agreement like other grocery stores were to like purchase I think tomatoes mm -hmm. that were you know Immokalee workers had a hand in producing. I haven't followed that like in a minute, but I do know that Publix was at the center of this hot debate about farm workers and fair wages. Mm -hmm. So what we're not going to do is tarnish Publix's name I, on I, this I, podcast. I will not. <laughs> we will not. So to wrap this this segment up, <laughs> no, or to, but to wrap this grocery bag up, we'll say mindfulness. As consumers, we should be mindful of the food we're coming from mm -hmm. and try where possible, financially and otherwise, to uh, source our foods from sustainable and living wage sources. 
Right, right. It's more than just, I mean, food is really the source, you know, having whole food is, we talk about how that's tied into health, but where you're getting your food is also tied into kind of where that, where that money goes in terms of supporting the actual right. food growing system um, instead of the distribution of that. All right, I will do the next one. Our next topic. You picked the most crinkly, rustly bag <laughs> that they had. All right, I got two because Allison can't pick just one piece of paper at a time. Longest you've waited for food. <laughs> <laughs> what does it say? <laughs> this, this sounds like um, a topic written by someone who was hangry in a moment. What is like, Longest you've waited for food. I really need to discuss. <laughs> I just, I just gotta say, not there will be. This is yours. I, I, just, yes. I just love that. It's just all your, all your, all your contributions are emotional and, and from the heart, and I love it. I mean, I had an actual like current events question in there, but <laughs> oh, is it the we may one? or may not get to it. <laughs> but um, so uh, I asked this question because this past weekend I was in Atlanta. One of the best cities on this planet, um, the closest thing to Wakanda outside of Africa. And I was there for a conference, and I heard about this restaurant called Slutty Vegan that had this huge following. You mentioned this before you went. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I read about them. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But I heard, you know, they had – they started off as a food truck, and the owner, Pinky Cole, Pinky Cole she started doing catering orders for vegan burgers – and she kept getting like more and more like requests, and especially over like social media, people were like, "Yo, I want these burgers." And so she eventually opened a food truck, and this food truck gained a huge following. People would be waiting in line for hours in random parts of the city for this vegan burgers from this food truck. And then in January, I think I believe it's January, she opened up a actual brick and mortar establishment, Slutty Vegan ATL. And since it opened. The lines have always been ridiculously long. Uh, before I went, one of my friends, she was saying, be prepared to wait two hours for a burger. And I was like, what? And so on Saturday evening, I made the pilgrimage. You did Saturday evening. I did. And they, they closed at 1 a.m. yourself. Well, well, people were saying, they opened at 4 o'clock. People were saying, get there at 3. Yeah, so your wait is only, you know, an hour as opposed to getting there later and you're going to be waiting even longer. But I got there at 8.15 and... <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not, the line was going down the block. and Did you wait? Yes, I did wait. Wow. Did you have like a for flask a of total, something? For a grand total of how long did you wait? Well, I'll, I'll get to that. So I got in line and... <laughs> Answer the flask question. You have a flask or something to hold you over? No, no, no. But I did make sure I had my phone fully charged. <laughs> I made sure to fully charge my headphones and I bought a book We're to read. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have water? No, all I had to charge. I, but no, no, I, no, I did not. Of alcohol I did not drink water though because I didn't want to leave and go to the bathroom because I was afraid I was going to lose my spot in line because oh, it was just me there. So yes, I, I had to be strategic about it. So yeah, I waited and... Someone was saying, oh, right here, the line, like the wait should be like an hour and a half. So I got in line at 8.15. I got my food at 11.45 p.m. Are you kidding me? Jeez. You could have watched an entire Lord of the Rings <laughs> in that time. So, yeah, a three and a half hour wait time for these. I mean, the, the burger was delicious. I got the Dance Hall Queen. It was a, I think it was an Impossible Burger topped with. Um, impossible Burger for the listeners. So it's a, it's a all vegan burger and it it really it it looks like and is texture it has a taste similar to ground beef is um, this what we had it is the but theirs theirs are better at slutty vegan i don't know what they do in terms of cooking it but Can like consider it it's meat. actual meat yeah <laughs> <laughs> they played she played y'all <laughs> no but this this burger was great it was a possible patty with vegan cheese with caramelized onions with plantains on a hawaiian Bun. Was it gold plated? No, it was for three not. hours, it better have been gold plated. <laughs> <laughs> and it came with fries too. That sounds pretty good. It, it was it was a good burger. Now, would I wait three and a half hours again? I'd probably wait with friends, but nah, wow. I'm good. Wow. It's the thing so, yeah. with long lines. You got to be strategic and also have other people that are with you. Yeah. So how long have y'all waited for food? We long went is... to the North Carolina Jerk. Chicken festival. Oh, don't even. That oh. was. But we waited for an hour and then jumped ship because we're like, because the line didn't move. And they were about to close, and they were clearly running out of food. They, every like ten minutes, they would come up and cross something <laughs> off the menu. <laughs> By the time we got up, it would have had cabbage. 
which honestly, Allison, you would have been fine with. <laughs> I don't know. Bar- after smelling all of that True. chicken. Mm. Yes. Yeah. The longest that I've waited is probably two and a half hours for our pizza in Brooklyn. And it's because, but I was with a friend and it's, it's because it's this pizza place and I don't remember the name. So listeners, please like, you know, chime in on Twitter with what the name of this pizza place is called. But there's just one guy who's making the pizza. He's this older guy. Um, he kind of just makes the pizza whenever he wants to and like does every stage of it. So Artisan the hours pizza. are the hours are kind of um, whenever he feels like making pizza. What? And the, there was a, a couple of years ago, he had a health scare and was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and the place was closed down. So <laughs> since then, the lines have been even longer because people are like, well, he's the only one who makes the pizza and he's going to die soon. Jeez. So does he have a, <laughs> does he have a son or a daughter that can, I have no, I have no idea, but, um, and Where the was pizza this again? Is, it's in Brooklyn. Ah. Um, but, um, like not, not Williamsburg. I don't, I don't remember where I'm not very familiar with Brooklyn or the name of this place. It could be, like it, it's it could not have been South. Did you dream this? I get to dream this. <laughs> but, uh, but I was with a friend. So we just, we put our order in and the guy's like, all right, well, it's going to be about two hours. And so we just went for a walk around the block and then came back Damn. and had our so pizza. It's a long walk. <laughs> My, my story is uh, much shorter. It, it's very brief. Having revealed my alcoholic tendencies, you can <laughs> Did you guess, pick a guess how I got through it. Um, it. It was for a bottomless mimosa brunch <laughs> in Astoria, uh, Queens, called um, Queen's Comfort. Queen's Comfort, I believe. Brunch sounds like a Ooh. prime waiting. We, and yeah, this food, yeah. they, they had this really cool menu. Had, have, they're, hopefully they're still around, uh, like alligator or these different things. Um, but the food was amazing, um, but it was bottomless brunch, and we had a little flask to hold us over. This was a New York City winter, though, so it was like 30 Ooh. degrees out. Um, so I would never do it again. That sounds awful. Yeah. It, was, it was awful, but uh, the, what do they call it? The, the, the alcohol coat, that's a thing, right? Beer coat, beer jacket, beer jacket. That's what it is. We had we had the well, it was a whiskey jacket, but um, that's the longest I would. Yeah, would ten out of ten would not recommend. I wouldn't wait that long again for anything unless you. Have I feel like everyone, you. if you go to Atlanta, you gotta make you gotta wait slutty vegan. That that's like I feel like a new rite of passage. I would do the three p.m. though. Honestly, I would do like two thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Weather's nice. Hang yeah. around. Take turns with friends. Walk around the block. Yeah. Bring a flask. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, you're up. All right. Snap work requirements. That is mine. So yesterday there was a public comment period that closed based on the snap work requirements. So I wanted to bring this up to explain and what what they what the Trump administration is proposing here because this idea of work requirements for snap has been um, kind of in the news since the farm bill was being negotiated last year and. Um, and it's also been something that's been brought up for Medicaid and housing vouchers and other social programs. But last year, there was a big fight over whether additional work requirements should be put into the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill was eventually signed without additional work requirements. But upon signing it, Trump then went, oh, well, I'm just going to pass a rule about this anyway. And everyone was like, wait, I thought we fought this battle. I thought that we proved that that's why you guys caved in on this, because you're just going to do your own thing anyway. So there are currently work requirements for SNAP, which are that after for able-bodied adults without dependents, after three months, if you're not either working, volunteering, or getting job training for at least 20 hours a week, then you lose your benefits. So you have to bring in paperwork that shows on a monthly basis that you're complying with this. But what a lot of states do is waive this requirement, um, especially for community, if they have you know populations that still have high unemployment. They waive this requirements. So what the Trump administration is proposing to do is to make it really, really difficult to get those waivers. Um, so and just some background on SNAP. SNAP, there are 40 million people in this country. So one out of every eight people in this country receives SNAP benefits. And out of the, this would have this could affect up to 750,000 people. So 750,000 people compared to 40 million might not seem like that much, but just as a number by itself, that's a lot of people that could lose their eligibility for SNAP. Um, and this affects it affects primarily people who are low income, who where job turnover is really frequent, and people are only likely to use SNAP benefits when they're unemployed. But 
you might have you might not meet this work requirement if you have a disability but it's not you're not currently receiving disability benefits so even though able-bodied adults without dependents also includes people it, like one of the other stipulations is that um, you're not a disabled person because if you are disabled then you wouldn't be affected by this but not everyone who has a disability receives benefits especially if it's kind of difficult to to prove that you have a disability um, or you just don't have access to the kind of resources to be able to get that paperwork filed so uh, people who have trouble finding work because of a disability because they have a criminal record and that makes it really difficult to find employment. You could have employment for less than 20 hours a week and just be underemployed. You could have seasonal work where you're employed for a part of the year and for the other part of the year, it's really difficult for you to find a job. So there are lots of reasons why, um, like I think, cause there's this narrative that, oh, well, yeah, there should be work requirements. We shouldn't be giving people um, benefits for free. But the whole point of programs like this is that it's lifting people up when they need help um, until they can get back on their feet. And something like SNAP is kind of, you know, it's a it's a Band-Aid that is, is only necessary because there are these more systemic issues like a problematic criminal justice system that results in people having criminal records and therefore being harder to find an employment or something like that. So I wanted to bring this up to see what you guys thought and what you've heard about around work requirements. Yeah. I mean, I knew that was hotly debated when the farm bill was passing and i guess what i think about it is and i'm going back to my experience living in baltimore because at one point i was on snap and for listeners snap is essentially food stamps allows you to get food at a um, basically you get a you get money on a card to purchase produce and other like foods at a grocery store so for a time when i was not working like just graduated college looking for work I applied for food stamps and, you know, I applied for SNAP benefits and I got them. And waiting in that office, I, you know, encountered a lot of people who, you know, were either down on hard times, couldn't work, couldn't find work, or as Allison said, might have previously been incarcerated and are, you know, just trying to find a job, but it's been hard for them to do it. And, you know, having to go, I think I had to go like every three months or something like that just to get it mm-hmm. renewed, just to make, you know, update my information. And it was like, I feel like the lines were getting longer. There was more people there. And I think an issue is one, definitely the people who have, you know, have previous records, you know, having a hard time finding jobs. But also there are certain places where there just aren't enough jobs. You know, they you can go to a quote unquote job training program, but like if there aren't enough spaces, available positions for these folks to be hired in, then how are they supposed to get back on their feet and, and be productive members of society? Like, how can they find jobs if there's no real jobs available? So that's one thing I think about is just the availability of jobs. and Yeah, like unemployment's low, but it's not low everywhere. Right. It also makes me think of just there's a lot of stigma still around the use of these kinds of programs. That's And, and this, programs. Keeps add, this just is, keeps adding to this narrative, which is problematic. Um, and this thing, also thinking about, you know, the snap of work requirements, you know, somebody can't find can't find work or is having a hard time establishing employment and you know they're on snap benefits what i've seen a lot of people do you know they'll they have their card and they, they'll sell their their benefits just to make some money so they can either you know pay a bill or do something else with it and you know i, I think that's something that's not talked about as much as like this entitlement program is getting people food but at the same time these people are they're just trying to make it and they're resorting to having to sell sell their stat benefits just to keep the lights on in the house. I think that's it highlights an even greater issue. I mean, while like having these entitlement programs in place, like you said, Allison, this is just a Band-Aid to cover right, right. a much deeper Right. Healthcare uh, costs issue. are going up. Housing costs are going up. And, you know, so we talk about, you know, paying the right price for food. But it's in, in other ways, it's a really good thing that food that we spend the least on food that we have in the past because all of these other costs are going up. So... It just also makes me really mad because this the argument also for this work requirement is that it will save $8 billion. But last year, the Trump administration passed a tax law that has more in tax breaks for the top 1% of people in this country than what it costs to run the entire SNAP program. Mm. And we're also coming out of this border wall debate. Just th- this idea that we have to keep cutting, we have to keep saving money in this way that directly affects people's livelihoods. That's very frustrating. No, I agree with that. I, for one, learned a lot about these issues. This isn't my background or my experience, but it's something that I think 
living in North Carolina, grew up growing up in South Florida. These these issues, they have they're the same issues everywhere, globally and locally. They just look different. So it's so fascinating to hear the uh, these things. And I didn't know that work requirements were. It makes so much sense that that I can see from the policy perspective why. Just send paper. It sounds like it should be a good thing. Right? Yeah, people should be working 20 hours a week. That but then you spend reasonable. a day with the actual SNAP beneficiaries, and then it's, and you're like, oh. oh, okay, yeah. I get yeah. it. I get it now. And, and we know that food insecurity affects health. And if you take SNAP benefits away from people, that's just going to have – we talked to um, – you can tune into our second episode with Dr. Colin Orr and Christian Lawrence to learn about food insecurity and health. Yes, and so that's a good segue into this week's guest, Dr. Jessica Fanso. We'll shift gears to, honestly, the same sort of health disparities uh, and the same sort of issues, but more from a global take. So we're excited to share that with you, and we'll be back momentarily to share our concluding thoughts. Okay. Excited here for this interview to have Dr. Jessica Fonso, someone who personal mentor of mine and I've known since my undergrad days and is the reason that I'm in this field. Um, and I will take 15 seconds to read out her wonderful titles because she does so much and it would be a disservice to not acknowledge all she does. Uh, Dr. Fonso is the Bloomberg Distinguished Associate Professor of Global Food and Agriculture Policy and Ethics at the Berman Institute of Bioethics. Uh, at Johns Hopkins and the School of Advanced International Studies, SICE. And she is the director of the Global Food Ethics and Policy Program also at Hopkins and the co-chair of the Global Nutrition Report um, and a million and one other things. But I figured uh, I might let you introduce yourself and say some of the many things that you're involved with in your own words and we can take it from there. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. It's um, so nice to see you and see you progressing in your in your studies and <laughs> such a dynamo um yeah um my name is Jess Fonzo as you said and I'm a professor at Hopkins and I really focus on the intersection between nutrition agriculture and the environment and I would say I focus more at, um, in rural places so working on rural development as opposed to urban urban is is a little bit in my work but mm-hmm. but really focusing on rural people and places and, and, and the underlying drivers of why we see so much food insecurity and malnutrition being poverty and, right. and other um, struggles that rural places deal with. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, so to that end, because that encompasses a lot of different directions, different fields, what is maybe the most pressing or some of the most pressing that you view um in the field of global nutrition, we talk about, a lot about malnutrition and dual burden and overnutrition. Maybe is there some aspect that you think we don't talk enough about, we being us uh, students and practitioners here at um, institutions uh, in the West? Uh, I think that we, I mean, you know, I think there's a good solid understanding now that we have a lot of undernutrition in the world and we have a lot of overweight and obesity, but I think I think we've sort of forgotten about these underlying drivers right. of why we're, we're in this situation and it being okay. issues of poverty, issues of social injustice, race issues, you know, all of these sort of underlying drivers of why people are in this situation now, why some people have more access to healthier food environments, why others don't. Um, why are the statistics so bad for rural people? Why are why are the statistics so bad for certain classes, certain races in the United States, for example? So I think we have to come back to that idea of these social determinants of of what has very been very well characterized in the health field, but we need to really apply that to the nutrition field and start tackling these underlying drivers of why we see malnutrition burden. And then, so what's, um, let's say a student or a, a young practitioner in, in the field of nutrition in that case, um, what's maybe the most targetable or actionable lever that they can, if they're trying to engage with these sort of underlying issues and these systemic determinants, how can they, what's one of the best ways to engage with it uh, in their work or in their study? Go to the field, go to communities, talk to community members, talk to households, go to rural places in Africa and Asia. You went to Myanmar mm-hmm. for some of our work together. Mm-hmm. So you see firsthand of how people 
deal with things right. and how the struggles that they they um, are challenged with. I think there's nothing more rich in really getting to the ground and seeing the face behind these numbers, these statistics. Right. Who's the face behind those? And, and why are they one of these statistics? Right? right? Yeah. So I think to me that's really, that's how I learned, you know, in the field, sub-Saharan Africa, talking to farmers, talking to moms, talking to dads and households. And you really see the face of poverty when, you, when you're confronted with it head on. Right. So don't go to the UN and go get some cushy <laughs> job in Rome. Don't sit in your ivory tower at UNC or Hopkins. <laughs> Get out there and, and see the world and see how different people deal with their own struggles. And, and if we think about, you know, the diet space, it's, it's really easy to say, you know, the world is eating a, a suboptimal diet, but why? Like, and what does it mean in you know, East Baltimore, which is yeah. very impoverished? Right. Like, what does it mean in, in, in you know, Sowery, Kenya? So what does it mean for these people when they, they are not able to get access to a healthy diet so it's really understanding the struggle yeah and, and that's something that i think i'm thinking more of now that link between especially for a lot of people doing global work we end up in these fishbowls these silos where we think what we're doing is so unique and is so context specific but then we look in our backyards and the case is very much the same here mm-hmm. what sort of connections or, or how transferable are the things that you are implementing and developing and learning in international context? Uh, are there times where you come back and you say, wait, you know, we, we, we need to be doing this very same thing here. Is that common in, in your work or that? That's, I mean, yeah, that's an interesting qu- question, Chris, because I've been thinking a lot about it. So if, let's take poverty. Poverty looks so different in, let's again, take rural Kenya, mm-hmm. right? Or rural Myanmar. Right. I mean, a lot of these communities are they're in the they're in the the nothing category, right? They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They don't have functioning markets that are delivering lots of fresh, diverse foods, right? Right. Um, it's mainly agriculture. They're kind of in the the zero. They they don't have much. Right. And, you know, they're living season to season. But then you go to inner city. South Chicago or Detroit or Baltimore, it's very, it's, it's a different kind of poverty. You know, it's mm-hmm. incarcerated, affected families, gun violence, food deserts, significant racial disparities. Can you say one is better than the other? And can you compare them? It's definitely poverty. It's disadvantaged. It's, it's, it's disempowerment. And those all sort of cut across but tackling them I think is a very different thing and that's why you have to go to the field you have to go to communities because poverty looks very different in different places right. and for different reasons right so I mean I always call America in the negative you know people are in debt yeah you know, they have electricity they have running water but you know you've got opioid addiction you've got guns people have significant credit card debt People are in the negative, you know, it's just a different kind of poverty. And then you compare that to like the pastoralist in Somalia, a guy with 2,000 camels. Is he poor? Right. We classify him as being poor, but is he poor? He doesn't think he's poor. He's got 2,000 camels. Yeah. That's a lot of money. (laughs) That's a huge investment. Right. So it's also on how we classify people. Not everyone thinks they're poor, but they're classified as so. And then, so that brings up a question that, especially now, um, is very relevant given this. The symposium is about food security globally and, and agriculture globally. And something that I, I find that um, we do, and I'd love to get your opinion on, is when we're talking about smallholder farmers, uh, be they in sub-Saharan Africa or highlands in Latin America, we talk about improving their agriculture productivity or mm-hmm. uh, bringing technology, data sharing, knowledge sharing, all these very, very important things, and then. Every now and again, I catch myself and I say, economics 101 in sixth grade, you know, we learn primary economies are the ones that are based on uh, developing raw materials and then tertiary economies are the ones that are using service. Mm-hmm. So it, in, in a sense, it, it yes, those are important. Yes, that's bang for buck now, maximal good 
for helping them and helping the economies grow, but isn't it also reinforcing these systemic inequalities between, again, us and them to some extent? I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you think about how countries have transformed and these structural transformations that have taken place, even then you see them look very different in different places. You know, the way China did it was very different than the way India's doing it, right? Right. Um, But there is sort of this cookbook formula of, you know, maybe the World Bank has a certain view of the world and how to reduce poverty. And is it through agriculture or is it through services? And the UN has a certain view of how that should be done. So, yeah, there is still a huge divide. It's not a bottom-up. It's a very right. kind of top-down approach of of how development should look, you know, and how transformation should look. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's that easy, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, so, so to... We talked about the UN, the different organizations. Um, I, I asked Roger Thoreau this question, uh, and, and I like his answer. It was very interesting. And I think you'll, um, the question is, so, so let's say you could grab in your hand and the reins of all these policy decision-making institutions and people and administrations, mm-hmm. uh, what action would you co- coerce them to take? Or what would that action be? Or maybe not so specific as an action unless that you have one in mind, maybe a direction. What would that be? given your context and understanding of maybe World Bank is this top-down thing, FAO does this thing, what would that action, what might that look like? <laughs> I mean, I just spent a year at the FAO. I mean, just, just I mean, it's hard to move anything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess my one action is just be a bit more punk rock. Be a bit more <laughs> bold. Like, like you know, don't let things like just fester and right. take a year to make a decision on something. For me... A lot of these big machines, these these massive institutions, they're just not nimble enough, and the world is moving so fast. Right. You know, compared to, you know, IT and and startup companies in California, and there's so much innovation going on. It's moving so fast, and then you walk into a UN agency, and you feel like you're stepping back in time. There's just not a lot of bold action happening it's very layered and Mm -hmm. takes multiple approvals and Mm -hmm. hoeing and humming of should we do this should we do that so i mean i know it's a vague action but it really i mean can can we make some decisions and just and i think it's it's yeah quit quit being so risk adverse Uh yeah so that's yeah it's a little bit how i feel and and you know in, in fao and we're really in dire straits because the hunger numbers are going up. Mm-hmm. We can't sit there and stall anymore. What's going on? You know, why so then is the solution young folks facing out the older folks? Is the solution Maybe. some sort of rattling the cages? Some big name people have to do that, or is it all of these things and then some un, yet unforeseen? I, mean, I think the, the the wise older people are important, but yeah. I think there is a, a an upcoming younger generation that's you know probably not even interested in the UN. You, right. you guys yeah. are looking at very different sort yeah. of careers, um, you know, in private sector and in using technology that that would never, you know, hold up in, in the UN. So I think you need those older, wiser people who understand systems and policy making, but I think we need a lot more innovation and creativity in the 21st century, and it's going to come from your, your generation. Right. Yeah, so, and and I think you know you guys kind of rethinking about global development overall. Yeah, you know, like, do you think the sustainable development goals are working? Right. Are they? Are this is you know we have a roadmap for development and this is how it's going to work and every country needs to report right. on goals. Is that working? Are you asking me? Yeah. I, I think it's working as a, a PowerPoint slide that people can point to and say, <laughs> this project touches on that. I think it works in that capacity. Mm. But are people using it the way that me as a young college student, when, when it was like, oh, this is going to be revolutionary. I don't think it lived up to that in the way that I thought it would. Yeah. So what's your what's your generation's construct for ending hunger and malnutrition? How are you guys going to shape it? You know, that's the question. How are you guys going to? really shift the agenda on climate yeah. and that whole climate march was amazing yeah yeah it's yeah. like you know the kids are not all right as they were saying mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um it's gonna have to be an, a, a real paradigm shift in the way we do 
development and the way we think about some of these grand challenges and right. how we're going to tackle them. Right. And it's not going to be the UN, most likely, mm-hmm. or World Bank. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be a very different kind of uh, architecture that that pushes the agenda forward. I hope it is. Yeah. I'm hoping. I'm I'm leaning on you, Chris. <laughs> and, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of young people here in this uh, this symposium and in general about this very issue and it's, it's funny is a lot of them the answers range from we have the knowledge we're going to get in there and fix it in a very outdated maybe white savory kind of way to mm. to the complete other end of the spectrum today i was having a conversation and this 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 young person said we shouldn't be there um we should basically find some ways to invest resources and training but leave it to local skilled community workers or experts to, to fix that and and I, I personally i don't think either one of those are, are, are exactly feasible um, but it's it's these are the kinds of questions that i think people young people are now having to answer that i don't know if they always had to or mm. even now questioning their role in and it's an important question mm. to question our role in global development but it, it it just it seems to add more variables into the mix sometimes than, yeah than than yeah. it solves yeah, yeah and i think you know i mean every country now needs fixing right right the united states is in dire straits mm-hmm. i mean every country in some way shape or form if you think of particularly nutrition right oh, yeah. every country has some form of malnutrition yeah. every country is going to struggle with climate some more than others will adapt better right um but every country is going to struggle so even just being in your own country working on development issues is super key. Yeah. But we do need to build the capacity of everyone, you know, in in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa there's so much talent there, but it's right. just giving them the arena to be able to use that talent. Right. I think um I find the nutrition conundrum really incredible. Like the, the obesity pandemic is super serious right. it's going to just cost society so much and what are we going to do you know like well, how are we going to how are we going to fix the food system when you have a lot of people behaving really badly yeah yeah and it's and not governed and not wanting to be governed and they're much more powerful i don't know yeah i mean i really in the in the symposium today, that question was asked, and I don't have the answers to how we deal with that. Right. right. I hope you guys do. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> People are spending time, money, energy, effort, and grad students on things like soda taxes to, I, I think, clear benefits, but also inconsistent benefits. Also, it works in this context, but not here. Yeah. But then it's regressive here, and it hurts such. A, so it's and even that's. That's supposed to be policy. If anything, that 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 would have been one of the more, quote unquote, easiest mm-hmm. solutions to enact. But even policy, so then you get down to the intervention level, and so then, and you get to the ethics level where people will say, level. "Don't tell me I can't yeah. buy my soda." Right? How dare you tax something that, you know, I have the right. Yeah. You know, it's that self liberties. You quickly get into autonomy issues around. I have the right to drink soda. How are you? You know. Why is my government taxing that? Yeah. Like cigarettes, you know, so people see them very different. Yeah. So, and I read a lot of dystopian uh, fiction and <laughs> watch a lot of dystopian movies, and they're increasingly seeming less and less dystopian. There's a famous Chinese movie that came out recently, the first big blockbuster movie. Which? I'm bl- something Earth. I'm blanking on the name, but the premise is the Earth is. They have to move the Earth into a different galaxy, <laughs> so they are rockets yeah, strapped to the Earth, and they, they, they and it sounds silly <laughs> as I'm saying it, it's actually great, but it's because of climate change issues and, and all the and the sun was gonna, um, but you know the fact that we're potentially we're considering behavioral actions that have that already have and will continue to have long lasting uh, planetary yeah. impacts. It, the fact that we're in that space now, and yet we still haven't taken strides to address it. It can be so. It is sobering. It yeah. Be, it can be depressing. How, how do you how do you deal with that? You know, and you, you work. You're in the thick of this field, and you're, you know, are there ever days that you just feel like, man, what can we do, or how are we going to do it? I do. Um. Yeah. I'm. A, I'm the. Uh, what is it? A hopeful pessimist. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Does that make any sense? No, that contradicts each other. But no, I think. I mean, I think there's lots of cool stuff going on in in the food system. But I, yeah, we are in a time where, like. 
for example, the cyclone that hit Mozambique. Yeah. yeah. To me, Chris, that kind of felt like I, I I had emailed my husband and I said, "Here we go." Right. Like this is this is the kind of stuff we're going to start seeing yeah. on like catastrophic levels. Yeah. Totally unprepared, right? Mm-hmm. No ability to deal with the natural disaster. Talk about a water situation. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the New York Times and I clicked on the little video. There was like a one minute video and there's a woman being interviewed and she was quite desperate. And she, the, the first thing she said was, we don't have any food to eat tonight. What are we going to do? We don't have any food. She kept saying we don't have any food. So this is kind of a classic example of a water situation, right. which is what this conference is all about. Right. A natural disaster, too much water, really impacting immediate food insecurity needs. But I, I, I think of that cyclone in Mozambique as, you know, we're going to see more of this. We're not going to be so prepared. Yeah. And more, freq- more frequent. More frequent, more violent, bigger impacts on humanity. And, and the, the landscapes where humans live. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it is very kind of uh, like these sci-fi movies that you see. But, you know, I think, I think that, for example, soda tax. Mm-hmm. Who would have ever thought that that would even have been possible? Right, that's true. That's true. What a huge game changer in the sense that now governments are kind of regulating these crappy foods. Mm-hmm. Or trying to. You know, are industry. open to it. Or open yeah. to Given it. Given all the money that's funneled into yeah. them, not integrating yeah. it. Or you take Chile. They've got this front-of-the-pack labeling, yeah. right? The the black stop signs of mm-hmm. high fat, sugar, and salt Easy to understand foods. for most people. Very effective, yeah. But then they took that, and mm-hmm. then they regulated those foods that have that label. Right. So you can't sell it at a school. You can't advertise it on TV during prime you know, right. uh, hours where, where kids are watching TV. That's pretty bold. Yeah. So, I mean, we need more examples like that. So I think there's lots of great shining stars. We just need tons of those stars shining all at once, right? We need different types of things happening in different countries that are adapted to that context. Like you said, the tax can't be used everywhere. Some places it'll work, some places it won't. So you've got to think of plan B, C, and D. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of those in the coffer. There's a lot of evidence of what could work to improve food environments, climate mitigation, climate adaptation. You could be addressing all these things mm-hmm. simultaneously. It's just going to take governments caring and committing, private sector behaving and partnering, consumer awareness, yeah, real innovators, young innovators coming to the table with great new ideas. I, I have I mean, I, I, I am hopeful. I do think you guys have big challenges. I mean, we, the, the world has been left very messy for you. Right. And the, the whole grand experiment of human endeavor, it's pretty miraculous some of the things that humans have done in time and times of struggle. Right. You guys can do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this so much because um, there's a rabbit hole of, Oh no! What are we gonna do? And and I think I think we climbed back out. I think we're, we're out of the rabbit hole now. Uh, um, no, but I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Of course, I'm pessimistic, but right. I I really do think that when you look in Hopefully the history of time, like there are things that have really completely. I mean, we we no longer have famines, really. Right. Not at the not at the except Yemen, which is going on, but that's a conflict type thing. Right. Human dream. But from. But from a, a food failure famine, we haven't had a massive one since Ethiopia. And that was three decades ago. Right, right. And Ethiopia, I mean, look at Ethiopia as a success story. So you've got them. You've got to look for them and figure out how to scale those up. Yeah. Well, the last section here, I'll, I'll shift gears because I wanted to ask it earlier. And I thought we started with all the wonderful things you're doing now. And this is a podcast about food and uh, food being the unifying theme across all these fields, and your background, your 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 foundation is in nutrition. So I, I thought it might be useful and fascinating because I've never heard this story. How did you go from nutrition to all these things? There are natural segues from nutrition to all these fields. But what was your path, and how how did you choose it, or did it choose you? 
My path was that I didn't have one. <laughs> Super random. I was not strategic at all. And I totally recommend doing that in life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I right? Letting the road just take you where it should go, not you trying to figure out where the road should be. So I, I think um, for me, I started off really as a nutrition molecular biologist right. i was looking at gene interactions it was a lab rat <laughs> sat at benches pipetting liquids into tubes for many years i cannot picture that <laughs> and then i did my phd finished it at university of arizona and um and then i decided to completely leave nutrition and i did a postdoc in molecular immunology wow looking okay. at how uh, how uh, HIV targets T cells to die. So again, wow. a very kind of molecular mm-hmm. HIV type uh, path. And I did a four-year brutal <laughs> postdoc at Columbia. Yeah. And then I left completely bench science, which is a big decision oh, yeah. for anyone who's in you know bench science. Having spent that much time in it as well. Yeah. Once you leave it, it's very hard to go back. Yeah. So that was like one of those, you know, the road is going in two very different directions. Right. Which one do I take? And I just felt that staying in bench science, molecular biology, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't creative enough to really go up through that path of having my own lab and getting R01s from NIH right. and, and building a whole lab, which is a very expensive endeavor. Right. I just wasn't good enough, Chris, to do it. It's a hard slog. Hmm. Laboratory sciences is a tough gig. Right. I mean, long hours. You know, you need a lot of funding to support a lab. So then I decided to go into public health, and I really went into HIV. Right. So I, so and then I did that, and that was my introduction mm-hmm. in international development in Africa. Right. In sub-Saharan Africa and South South Africa and Uganda. So I spent eight years never picking up a nutrition article. Wow. Well. Not one. <laughs> I didn't read anything in the space. I think that was a little bit of a mistake for me. Right. Because right. I really kind of lost what was going on in, in the nutrition world. And then I met Jeffrey Sachs, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, I was asking him about some HIV AIDS jobs and global health, and he saw my resume, and he's like, I didn't realize you had a PhD in nutrition. Right. Would you like to do some nutrition work at the Earth Institute? Uh-huh. And that was sort of my entree back into nutrition. And and working with him, he's so um, he's such a broad thinker. Yeah, yeah. That it really he introduced me to the world of agriculture because he had Pedro Sanchez, World Food Prize winner, and Cheryl Palm, who you know, mm-hmm. and all these other people working with him. So just by nature of working with someone who's such a big development, international development thinker, started to get exposed to, you know guys working on infrastructure in Africa, then agriculture, and then education, and health. And it just became this very natural fit that nutrition sort of slotted into all of these different disciplines and sectors. And that really brought, that completely opened my thinking about nutrition. And I have to say, I was was at dinner with a colleague of mine, Rafael Flor, who's at Rockefeller Foundation. We both cut our teeth in the field in Africa working with Jeff and, and wow. that whole team where I really spent a lot of deep field experience. And sometimes it takes that one mentor, that one person who really opens some doors for you. Like you for me. <laughs> I, for, I mean, and, and Jeff Sachs is as controversial as he is. Mm-hmm. He opened that door for me and every, you know, all of you guys are going to have someone or more. You know, you're going to have five, six. Right. Hopefully you can count your mentors <laughs> on committee, yeah. two hands <laughs> that open doors for you. And they become really important in you taking certain directions in your career, just making you think in a new way or introducing a whole new network, you know, of, of, of people that you'd work with into the future. So those mentors are, and I have several of them, but they're really key, you know. So yeah, I, I left nutrition completely, but did not start in public health, international nutrition. Totally took right. different paths, and I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, because I think I I think a little bit, you know, I'm glad I got that really rigorous lab training. I think it helps me analytically when I think about things. 
Yeah. So I think, and you know, and then the career going from the CGIAR, UN, academia, development, NGO, all of those, I'm glad I did all of that because it gave me different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. So get, yeah, the the coolest thing is, is just getting the most experience you can. I never understood, and I I respect people deeply, but I never understood people that stay in one One. job. (laughs) I, I, I just don't get it. I mean, and you're always advised, stay in a job for 10 years and then you move on. That's just old school. Then it's so much a problem in academia because it's your one just... job becomes your life. But that life is micronutrient deficiencies in this context, given this pre-existing condition in the 30s. Or yeah. you know, it's something so siloed that it, it, it becomes very difficult to say, okay, well, what, what did I just do for the past yeah. <laughs> 30 years? Yeah, or, totally. Yeah. But I'm so glad I got my PhD in nutrition. It's such a cool field it now. Is so fascinating. When I did it, it was not cool. It was not cool. Food and nutrition was not cool. It's all the people, people were even Instagramming making... their food and all. No one was doing any of it. No people one was doing podcasts, podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> on food. There was a po- well, podcast didn't exist. World Wide Web barely existed, right? But no. Um, but yeah, it's now. I'm so glad that back then I picked something that was uh, is is cool now. I mean, it's it's kind of like a loser degree back then. What? I, I can't even <laughs> picture that. Wow! Everybody wants a nutritionist. Sometimes, like now. even in some schools, nutrition would be like lumped in with like home economics. Oh, and you're stuff. kidding no. me! No, or family studies. Wow! Wow! So people thought it was kind of just like this, you know, cooking crockery kind yeah. of degree. Yeah, that's oh. why I went like hardcore. Like I'm doing molecular biology. Right. I'm gonna make I'm a serious. Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm not gonna do the yeah nutrition counseling. But now you know it's 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 such a such a thriving field. Yeah, yeah. I, so. That was so uh, insightful. I, I can ask you 15 million more questions. But what I'll do is I'll go on to what we call our final course that we ask to all of our interviewees the same two questions. The first is to end things on a positive note. Um, what keeps you hopeful? Well, people like you. And I'm not just saying that. Like, you guys are awesome. That's why I like being a, a professor. Is I get to be exposed to young minds, you young whippersnappers. <laughs> and it just totally energizes me. I have, I have hope in the world as a, someone who's a, somewhat of a pessimist. I always, like, at the end of my classes, I feel really energized. And so I, that, to me, is, is, is really... That's what gets me really excited is that, you know, the world's not going to end tomorrow because we've got people like you in it. No, that's... That could, that's true, that's though. Awesome. I mean, yeah, it really makes you feel hope in humanity. Yeah. Great. And then the last... Oh, ooh, what I'll do, actually, is um, I'll, I'll make it three questions for you because it's a question I've always been dying to ask you. So I'll add it at one point. Why do I look so old? <laughs> Definitely not that. The question is... Why do you love goats so much? I've always wanted to know. They're just really cool creatures. So they're super smart. They're really hardy. Okay. They can eat almost everything, including garbage. All the the waste Uh that everyone's throwing out. Um, I just think they're really smart creatures compared to, for example, sheep. (laughs) They're they're a friend that they're often grazing with. But I don't know. I just think goats are just these hardy, hardy creatures and... They're kind of lovely. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they'll have like a little beard. Sometimes they have bangs. Sometimes they've got like, you know, curly long horns. They're very beautiful, right? All the breeds of goats. I just think they're really special. And you see them everywhere in the world. So is this a bad they- time to tell you that one of my favorite foods is curry goat? That my mother's <laughs> made? Is this a bad time to say that? <laughs> no. And they probably don't mind being eaten. But yeah, I mean, and they're so, you know, you can eat them. You can milk them. Mm-hmm. Um, Cheese. But, you know, there's a downside to goats in that they're quite, you know, they can degrade land. Right. But you see them in, like, the border of Kenya and Somalia. Right, driest, the most hardy just, places. You know, just trudging along. So they're yeah. goat people, in addition to cat people and dog people, we now know that there are, are people who love goats. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole, like, subculture. And we have a blog called Goat Rodeo. Have yeah. you seen it? I have. This is why I've always wanted to ask I, you. I need to post on it more. But yeah, my husband really curates it. He's also obsessed with goats. But someday we're going to have a goat farm. Someday. Okay. In D.C. Downtown D.C. I've always wanted to have one in Sardinia, Italy. Oh. 
the island. Just, yeah, just and they have special goats there that have these like beautiful bangs, like these kind of long, like fluffy bangs. You you've thought about this? This <laughs> certainly isn't the first time. It's... <laughs> but my last question then is, what is your soul food? If you say curry goat, then that would be. The <laughs> I mean. I'm obsessed with clams. Is okay. that weird? No, I mean clams are delicious. How, I mean, I your... should say like my mama's pasta. I'm <laughs> Italian, but it's really not. I mean, it's really. If someone were to put a big bowl of hot steamed clams Ooh. with drawn butter and a cold beer, you'd be set. Yeah. So Baltimore is a great place for you. You love Baltimore. Well, the best clams in the United States are the Pacific Northwest. I haven't been. Okay. okay. Where I grew up in Seattle. Man, you go get some bucket of steamed clams. It's the best. You and I are going to do it. Okay? <laughs> Wait, and you're going to you're going to be converted. I, I love it's so good. <laughs> like on a, like a uh, like a nice sunny day in Seattle, which is rare. Get that bucket of steamed clams. You're looking at the Puget Sound, cold beer, <laughs> nothing like it. I even have a clam tattoo on my body. I'm so obsessed with clams. Have we never talked about that? You have a goat tattoo? I don't. Oh man. I have a clam tattoo though. All right. Well, after this, we're gonna get some clams, beers, and go to the nearest tattoo studio in uh, in BC. No, but <laughs> so to summarize this podcast, uh, innovate goats, <laughs> clams. clams. Don't don't follow the traditional road. <laughs> don't don't be follow. punk rock. Be punk rock. I actually really like that. I really like that's as good a note to end this on as any. Be <laughs> punk rock. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I, I hope the the listeners. Um, you should definitely follow uh, Jess on social media. Do you want to give them your Twitter handle? Jess Fonzo. Mm-hmm. Just like that at Jess Fonzo. Yep. Um, she posts all the latest and greatest in the field of nutrition and beyond. Um, so so really really great platform and and social media presence. So thank you so much for the time and. So yeah, wanted to say thanks again to Jess. That was a really that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. she's such a fun and intelligent person. Um, so yeah, what did you all think? Well, one, I wish I had her as a professor. <laughs> <That's cool>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like the fact that she took this non-traditional path to get to where she is now, having started nutrition, getting into HIV work, which took her globally, right, and then using her nutrition background to be able to address. Um, food insecurity around the world. All these systemic ways, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that she's in Baltimore doing her research on rural food, which I think is really interesting because I never thought a place like Baltimore there would be a focus on like rural, but wow, rural food insecurity uh, domestically and globally is an important topic. I really, really like that she how she said in order to understand poverty, you really have to go to each community and yeah. you can't just assume that mm-hmm. you know poverty is universal across all communities. You have to go and find out what specific forms of poverty right. people are dealing with. And I think that's a message that doesn't get out, that doesn't isn't disseminated as often as, as it should. Right. Um, and her saying, who's the face behind the stats and, and why? So not only learning about who people are, but why they are faces of poverty and it gets back to our discussion earlier about snap and work requirements right it might sound on paper like a good right. thing that people should be working but have you actually talked to people right another part where she talked about just the just doing this work doing this research how we need the older generation who knows those systems and structures they've had that firsthand knowledge I really how like this that works answer, yeah and you know us us quote unquote young folk <laughs> you know we embrace technology I, we embrace I am innovation young. Why, why am i in yeah, speak for yourself with that thing. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of age chris just celebrated a birthday yeah so. and allison yeah. yeah yeah happy birthday to thank you, thank you. Both. so we we are getting older <laughs> but um no. yeah so it's you know, in order to progress in advancing these issues of nutrition, food security, global health, farm work, all this stuff, you know, it's require it's going to require younger generation to work with the older generation because we all have something to bring to the table. You know, we need that structure. We need to know how these systems have worked so we can know how to improve them. But we also need to be able to embrace technology and these new innovative ways for addressing them so that we can break the mold a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I I really, her message about poverty and really getting to know people, like really getting into the field stuck stood up, stuck out to me. But also her talking about soda taxes 
uh, kind of when you guys came back out of the rabbit hole at the end of the interview, um, where she talked about how we need tons of those stars shining all at once. Yeah. Where a set of text isn't going to fix anything by itself, but what those things do as you add more and more of them to just change the conversation and change what uh, what institutions and governments think is even possible in terms of you guys talked about this challenge of reining in these really large corporations these international very powerful wealthy corporations that that profit off of a really unhealthy food system but making what we can do is make lots of these small changes and in and through that process just change our idea of what's possible and culture that gave me a lot of hope going okay well even though the soda tax right. itself might seem dumb in the when you're looking up at all of the problems that we face it is important and i think a big function of that is her background and people like her with these very broad backgrounds that make someone very open to different solutions and aware of how the dots connect I think we need more of that. I think it's it's why it's it's why Dante, to your point, I love the advocating for go off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Non traditional routes are the new traditional routes. That also yeah. personally just made me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right? No, I, I think it's so, so important because it leads to us as future practitioners in this field and other listeners listening and, and, and people practicing now. It leads to an awareness of the problems and the solutions in all of their dimensions and how all the stars can all the stars all the stars can shine and what that really <laughs> looks like and I, I i really felt inspired by that yeah and you know that's a reason why we do this podcast we come from different backgrounds we have right. much different perspectives but it allows us to see these issues from different ways and we need these different perspectives in order to fully understand these issues and you know the solution to world hunger might come from yes economics Absolutely. it might come from you know I don't know, HIV, it may come from anywhere, but we need all these perspectives at the table in order to help each other understand the greater issue and how to go about tackling them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was, a, that was a really good interview. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Again, thanks. Jess uh, is at Jess Fanzo, F-A-N-Z-O. Definitely encourage you to check her out on Twitter. Check out her blog. Yeah, on goats? Uh, not on goats. I think goats are the... <laughs> <laughs> or did she have theme? two blogs? I'm confused. I thought that she had a goat-specific blog. Oh, if it is goat-specific, I definitely need to check this out. I th- I th- but I think it's just—I think she's a uh, um, favorite restaurants and these different sort of oh, okay. things. Um, That's but fine too. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. Definitely encourage you to check that out. And I'm a check dog person, us. but I would definitely rank goats above cats. So in my I'll rank wow. dogs, goats, wow. cats. Wow, we are cutting that out because Can't cats... Can't anything above cats. Uh, wow. All right. Um, this has we been the last to... episode of We All Got Here. <laughs> for listeners, note. I love cats, so uh, ignore that. Ignore that. Yeah. On um, that note, yes, as Chris was starting to say before I attacked cats... was rudely interrupted. <laughs> you can follow us at Wage Podcast, W-A-G-E Podcast on Twitter. And if you have any uh, questions... Comments, suggestions. suggestions, uh, interviews whatever you can also email us at hello at wagepodcast.com awesome and shout out to our 100th twitter follower <laughs> who is it it's farming first farming first is a global coalition calling on world leaders to increase agricultural output in a sustainable and socially responsible manner thanks for being our 100th twitter follower and being part of the conversation and thanks to all of you listeners for being a part of the conversation as well thanks for tuning in this is chris this is allison and this is adante we'll be back next time with more conversations around food because we all gotta eat